0: Right, good morning. Let's get started with today's topic which is not fair quality. And the first thing for you to do is go get away to the end up to what makes time quality. A friend again by the case and so on. what makes time quality? All right, let's hear some of like, what what makes this book for it, okay? okay. The first I'll so unnecessary, but so. in- I don't know yeah. yeah. they Yeah. Anything yeah. that is <laughs> wrong? <laughs> no, no. <laughs> <That's good>. Yeah. <laughs> it's a good deal of Yes. It makes the customer happy. Ah, not a bad idea. Something else. Do you think if all of these policies are required? This is the or can we Or or extendability for the So, one so the thing I was getting at, by so having many answers, but I'm trying to get rid of it, is that these are trees so high quality. That is what you also get. Software is support quality, one day is This is not true. We can have a system that is totally budgetary, that is considered to be an extreme.
1: as yes, I was that the think that it's only a but
2: The wrong features the typical to use, uh, Customers satisfaction will be very low, So, a high quality system doesn't mean
0: budget. To do in the real world, uh, I dare to take this the ingredients of the budget So you did very well on this first exercise. Uh. A very important point when we think about social equality, which also came up on this very mission discussion, is that
2: social equality can shift its power to high quality. It's not the same thing as Ken. There is a small part of the community that we
0: have But if we get four requirements, the software systems that we build poor quality
1: system the client. So it's not just system, it's a matter of testing a high-quality software system, but it means that we need to perform each and every of the activities software to a high-quality system and, and validate, check all the different steps uh, that we do when we develop the software. In fact, we have understood the requirements right that we are properly built that we have a good design, and so, on. so testing is
0: a small but very important part of ensuring software. Here is a formal definition from our uh, standard library on software engineering, states that we can understand
1: software quality two different things. First of all, it's not, both good for explanation, if I describe and we well. now first we see the degree to which a system component of processes process needs to required. That is the thing we have here for our building. So requirements. to That's one part of the quality and also one part of quality assurance uh, called
0: verification. That is the execution method, the load.
2: That is very However, that means important the use like the of the or person the problem of the use of the 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 use of the need is important and, and some people when they define quality they like to say that it's the
1: like much
2: so, we need to think of quality in the broad sense of quality as software development for them.
0: Many of you actually mentioned very many of the typical
1: sub-parts of quality that we end up discussing in software
2: uh,
1: There is no standard on ISO 912 that defines software policies. attributes. Very straightforward here characteristics, they have been then been further refined into more uh, or detailed part. But, uh, and some
2: of the information that we what are the things from a software quality, that are important to find, because
1: what you will find is that for each and every project, customer, or market, uh, and product,
0: Customer that you'll never see again, will never buy from you again. That's why you care about it. And so
2: on. So, you, you have to do trade. You will have to do these trade-offs because aiming at for you business
1: will
0: make your product so expensive that it's impossible. So, let's look at this. we can also discuss some concretely this model, but we start,
1: let's start with the most obvious part of politics, that is, that one of the topics is functionality.
0: So, the first thing we should be concerned with is, if it's does it contain the right features, the right
1: functions, and do they work the way they should, as written in the requirements. This is typically the thing that most customers, clients, users will be extremely interested
0: in. Then going
1: to the right we have reliability. That's crash. Exactly. Is the system reliable? Reliability can be crucial if we have systems of which human lives depend on uh, uh, multiple servers, uh, and so on, and, and there are several, several technical uh, tricks you can do to build high-reliability systems it can be uh, just a convenient feature that it's reliable. If that's, if it's not, a ba- not bad if it crashes; we'll just restart the process and we're up and running again. But that is another aspect. Usability is something that tends to be very critical in most systems that we develop that will be used by normal people. Of course, if we develop Backend systems, we develop, develop certain pieces of software that don't have any user interface. and usability must be understood in a different way. What is the usability of, let's say, an API? That is a bit different from the usability of a system with screens that nobody users use. But I think all of you uh, get some pictures if you start to think about the usability of an API, it means something about how convenient, learnable, and so on. It is to use for the coder, who uses that API. So, so these aspects can be applied also to <coughs> things that do screen mouse screens, mouses, and it uses keyboards. You might very well, when you design technical things intended for your peers, also consider usability. So, is, is it easy to use? the software systems we have developed. We have efficiency, how efficient is it? In resource usage. This can be a non-issue, if we run on PC hardware mostly, doing non-critical, non-performance critical systems. We, can, we, we don't care much. This space is cheap, memory is cheap, we can always run more servers, whatever. But, if we have other kinds of software, Let's say we are building software for a mobile phone. Then efficiency. Using as little memory as possible, using as little uh, batteries, processing resources as possible. <laughs> uh, these things become extremely important your Whereas in other systems you can just more or less neglect uh, efficiency. But these are like, functionality, reliability, usability, efficiency. These are things that your clients, customers they would be interested in, in discussing with you. Either recognize that there are non issues, or say that they are. If we look at the ones here to the left, portability and maintainability. These tend to be characteristics of quality that are more important to us as developers than to the client. It, of course depends on the client but building a software system that is maintainable extendable and so on, can be crucially important if we are to uh, evolve that system and, and maintain it for several years and develop further versions very very difficult and maintainability as we already mentioned here we talked about looking beautiful uh, it actually has something to do with that as well.
2: And
1: that is well documented, uh, well commented, and it also requires a good architecture. So building a maintainable system requires the system to be beautiful at many levels. And finally we have portability, which can be an issue or it can be a non-issue. It again depends. Let's say portability uh, can be very crucial at the end, let's go back to the mobile phones, and we develop games for mobile phones. It should be portable between a vast array of different devices that have different screen resolutions, different processors, whatever, though they might run more or less the same Java.
2: So uh,
1: then it can be crucial for us to understand the portability requirements and what that requires from our software so we don't have to code the same game for each and every phone. We will talk more about that, actually, Tommy Manister to so will talk about software product families, which is what we end up with then. then. We essentially try to develop one set of code that we can run on a vast array of different devices, ending up with something called a product tablet. But affordability can be also a non-issue in many, many cases. So this is one way of starting to think about software quality, having a classification of different characteristics or attributes that you might like to think of. And this is helpful also uh, when you develop your requirements with the customers, because then you can think about the requirements from the point of view of these various quality attributes of your software. There is one aspect of software uh, systems that has become very important in in recent times, but isn't explicitly included in this model. Does anyone think something important is
0: lacking here? Of course the people behind the model says it's not like them. The thing I'm thinking of is security. When people like
1: right, to think of security as plan And the problem with security that is that it typically goes into about reliability and personality very much goes right, yeah. under But often people like to have to security before the security requirements for a software system. Okay, and here, also, uh, we have different stakeholders, as you remember from the requirements. Different stakeholders, different people have different interests in the software, and these have different viewpoints to quality. So they want to optimize uh, maintainability and portability, whereas clients couldn't care less. Clients are interested in usability of the user. And getting as little bill as possible for the system. And testers want to have software systems that are easy to test. So they are testable. So even a bug-free product that needs, a uh, the requirements if the requirements are only unacceptable. So the important point again is there are many viewpoints to quality, there are many attributes for you to think about when you think about software quality, and just thinking of software quality equals having no bugs. Uh, many, many years ago, I think it a group called Microsoft Teams, was published and in read, written by a professor at MIT called Michael Cusimano, uh, and uh, the that he was talking about Microsoft Excel, and when they shipped the versions of Microsoft Excel at that point in time, they had something close to 50,000 known
0: bugs that were released the software to the market.
1: So that's for bug-freeness, equal in software quality. We can of course argue that Excel is of poor quality, while it's one piece of software that extremely many companies rely upon. So it was a good enough quality sheet, 50,000
0: plus minus <coughs> problem. Okay. Let's move on to how we ensure software
1: quality. What do we do then to make software of quality? First of all, the first thing you need to do is to understand what software quality means in your context. And then you need to apply uh, certain tricks to ensure that quality. And there are essentially two quality assurance measures that we use in software engineering. We use reviews and we use execution-based testing. Some people nowadays confuse things by calling everything Mm -hmm. testing and then talking about execution based testing and non-execution based testing. Now execution-based testing doesn't mean that we execute the coders and made the mistakes. It means that we run the software test for by and non-execution based testing is same thing to do the athlete use. It means we read the documents, we reason about them, we have meetings about reading the code, reading the documents, checking the model without executing them, without without running them. So these are the two uh, methods that we use for ensuring software quality. Uh, When should we do, apply these methods? When should we
0: use reviews and test and execution-based testing? Any ideas? When do we test software? When do we check the quality? All right, the answer is not never, ever. Okay, find a friend. Ask somebody who knows. <laughs> <laughs> when do we test software? One.
1: that's the thing. All right. Now
2: your know, white fence have uh, solved the
1: problem. So when do we test software or check, for sof- check software quality in our software development project?
0: Any ideas? Yeah? All the time. Thank you. How? Uh, Regression-based
1: testing, for example. Regression-based testing, we'll talk about what that means for those who don't know, but we can do that until we have some code. We can also do <laughs> test-based design. We can do test 1st design, yes. Yeah or take through the development, yeah? then we might be able to do that. Any other technical reviews? We can have technical reviews. We can have formal reviews called inspections or we can just read, have few reviews reading the documents with then from the start. Then of course it depends on the life cycle model we use. If you use agile development uh, or uh, incremental development in general, we will earlier have code that can actually execute and test, and use automated unit tests, whatever. If we use a waterfall model, we would need to review the documents from the start. And, you we know, are typically in good uh, software uh, engineering, we combine, we use both reviews, even inspections, and uh, testing, execution-based testing uh, as methods in uh, our software development project. But the important thing is that software quality assurance isn't the same thing as testing the software just before we ship it. It is something we do throughout the project using various means. And here is one of you to that. Now oh, let's see if we can get this thing to work. No, we can't. Okay, this is a very fun video that you can't hear. Uh, let's see if I can... I just had it working. Now oh, let's see if... Because I checked it here. During the break. Okay, now we should be able to hear something. Let's see. <laughs> All right, so,
0: that is how software testing would look like uh, if
1: we weren't building software about physical products. It's almost done. Uh, we have some things in place. Our customers might already, already be running our software system. We are building and testing all the time. That is, in particular, if we use uh, incremental models, agile models, uh, that's very close to uh, what the realities of software testing and building high-quality software would look like. So software testing is something we do all the time, Uh, or quality assurance. Okay. Here is a more strict definition of software testing. Execution-based software testing. It says that testing is the process of exercising running a program with the specific intent of finding errors prior to delivery to the end user. once recorded by our users yeah. uh, isn't considered software testing. Well, well then, let's say that we talk now about execution-based testing, running, testing the software,
0: trying to find bugs. Who should do that? Who should test the software? Your mom? Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> That's absolutely possible, but who help? <laughs> Who test the software? Yeah. User. The user. Yeah, that's a very really
1: common way. We, we have made the user pay to test the software.
0: Uh, or did
1: you mean something else? Let's continue this story. That's uh, uh, often referred to as alpha or data testing. We'll talk about that later. Yes, at some point we would like our users to test the software typical before we do a major release. Uh, one of the greatest innovations of course in the field was Bill Gates with Windows 95 when he started charging money for people to test his software. So instead of giving away free data to get bug reports from his users, he charged people to buy a beta version of Windows 95. And, instead, and, and that's a business-wise a genius. Think about it. The cost dealing uh, with a beta testing program with lots of users all over the world testing and reporting bugs. And now you have the people who, who work for you pay for it instead of you paying them. That's a good idea. So that was brilliant. But yes, I mean, having users test their software typically very, when you're very, very close to a final release. That is very important and that's uh, used by many, many companies. Claire, who else? Yeah. Uh, other other developers, okay, your peers. Okay. Developers,
2: shouldn't be allowed to test usability.
1: okay, developers shouldn't be allowed to test usability. So we might have other people testing usability,
0: but the de- developers typically are also part of testing. Anyone else? Many organizations actually have different testing organizations.
1: So you can, have, you can have a different breed of humans called testers. They are not the same thing as developers. Uh, Microsoft has made a very strong point of recruiting people either as developers and testers. And there's virtually no movement between, between these two categories. So if you are either a tester, there's no way of becoming a developer by starting as a tester. You are a tester or you are a, are a developer. What do you think is the reasoning behind?
0: This. Do you think it's a good or a bad idea, and why might it be a good idea, or a bad idea? The reasoning, yeah? So bias-free. They're for you haven't written the
1: code. Okay, so that's one thing. In many cases, it's a good idea not to test your own code.
0: At least not be the only thing. So you are, a tester is unbiased, yes. What else do you think? You have any friends whom so you won't uh, give any of your things because they break?
1: Microsoft says that those are the guys who want for testers.
0: The guys that have this natural ability to
1: break things that we other, others think work. They, they will make extremely poor coders. Developers build things that they think work. Developers' personalities should be that they break things. That's what they do. Their job as testers is not to show that something works. Their job is to break. The developer's job is to build. So they are looking for different personalities. They are looking for the people who will make any software that you give them crash as quickly as possible. That do all the wrong things that the coders would ever ever think of because they know how it's supposed to work. So this is their argument. You, you, you need different personalities, different mindsets. You need a different mindset to be a good tester than to be a good coder. A good coder builds test that works. A good tester breaks anything. In particular the software that coders. <laughs> so this is the reasoning. And uh, it's a very, very sound approach, regardless of going into whether this is proven to be true or not. Uh, it's uh, typically important to have both the developers and independent testers test the software. Now the independent testers in some smaller organizations in particular can be salespeople. they can be uh, product managers, they are not the technical people, they are people who know how the software is supposed to work. So they typically need independent testers in addition to developers. Developers typically do low-level testing of their own code and they check smoke testing check that it seems to work. But then we have the independent testers whose only job is to ensure that they find as many bugs as possible. So their job is to try to break the system, not to show that it works. And now some observations uh, about bugs and software. This is something that we would like to ignore. They have, there are also statistics available, I'm not claiming that these are the numbers that are true in your organization, in your environment, and so on. Uh, but according to uh, some statistics made from other lot of data, it says that per thousand lines of code,
0: a typical professional coder makes at least six mistakes, six marks. If you, if you have used the PSP, you all know how many bars you make per uh, KLOC
1: a thousand lines of code. But the whole idea that I'm such a good coder that I don't make any bugs, it's wrong. It's stupid. It's much more interesting to know how many bugs I make per a thousand lines of code than thinking, well I won't make any bugs. We know that this will happen. And, and numbers like this means that if we have a big software system, we can measure its size, then we can have based upon or our historical data, or some data, uh, in general, from deep, uh, environments that are similar, we can have a feeling for how many bugs the system should have. Based upon historical data, we can say, OK, a million lines, we should find a few thousand bugs here. If we don't, uh, something is wrong. Either we have very good coders, unlikely, or we have very, very bad testing are very likely. And then they say that uh, pro- uh, programs that have been in use for a long time, typically we debug them to have about one, one bug left per thousand lines of code. Again, these numbers, they, uh, the point with this slide is not for you to remember the numbers, but to remember the idea that it's possible to make statistics of how many bugs we create in new software.
0: And we can use that information as an input to check our testing quality. Let's see if this is...
1: Okay, two slides, then we we'll take a break. The most known, well-known model for understanding the different kinds of different levels of testing that we do in software engineering is called the V-Model. It has many problems, but it's very logical to understand. It says that we should do testing at all the different all different levels in software engineering, the highest levels being the requirements. So we can see the typical uh, documents which you wish that we need to develop to the left when we build software we develop the requirements, we do a functional specification architectural design, a module level low level design, and then we do the code and then on the right, we can see the kinds of tests that we need to run, uh, or, or the types of tests that we do uh, that corresponds to the various uh, levels of our design. So we can see at the module design level, we do unit testing. When unit testing is testing the single modules or an object-oriented uh, programming, single methods, single classes. That is unit testing. Integration testing, that is when we check the whole... Uh, The architectural level, we integrate the different modules and check them. Then we have system testing, which is based upon, should match the functional specification. For unit testing, we typically have our coders involved. When we go to integration and system testing, we typically have external testers, uh, independent testers involved. And then when we check against the requirements, we have acceptance testing, part of acceptance testing, or sometimes so the whole, the whole acceptance testing is done by the client, or at least the clients uh, are present when we do uh, acceptance testing. And then we essentially say, does, does it meet the requirements? Now this V uh, model uh, uh, is based to correspond closely to the waterfall model. So what you'll see if you do incremental development, agile development, that is that you will need to do all of these uh, te- kinds of tests many times in your project. At the end of the iteration you would have uh, acceptance testing, you would have integration and system testing typically uh, even on a daily basis if you do daily builds. Uh, and that is why also test automation becomes so important. Having automated unit tests and even automated suits of system tests becomes very important because you test much more often than you do agile or uh, incremental development. But the idea, whole idea in testing typically is that uh, we start in small by checking the modules, the methods, uh, the procedures if you do use procedural programming, and then we move up to testing the whole system. And in traditional liter- software engineering literature, we take the viewpoint that is taken for testing to be based upon predefined test cases. Now a test case test what should be tested? What are the inputs we should give to the system? What are the expected outputs? So we can check whether the system fulfills, passes that test case. Uh, some new research uh, done partly by, by Uha Itkolent in my team uh, has shown, for example, that it's not clear us that it's more efficient to plan test cases beforehand at the level of system testing. Uh, Uh, or or acceptance testing. Uh, Juha will talk to you more about that in the second part of the course. So the idea of writing a set of of test cases, uh, there are many benefits to that, but it's not the only way you can run a test efficiently. Now is a good time for a break. Let's continue five past 11 local time. Let's go get automated unit test before we write the actual code that we test. Uh, you can, some people also talk about test-driven development in which we uh, base our whole development cycle on first writing uh, automated tests. Now, uh, what might be the benefit of, of starting with writing tests? Any ideas? Why might it be a good idea? I'm not claiming it, it is. some people are. Uh, why might it be a good idea? What does it help us to do? Yes. You know, when your code is you know when your code is working, but in order to write the tests, this is the point in test-driven development. Is. Then you need to know how the code should work, which means you need to understand the requirements perfectly for at a very low level. And this is one of the benefits people claim, of test-driven development, of test-first programming. That you really, by writing the test first, you 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 ensure your understanding of the requirements before writing the actual code that implements uh, those requirements. But unit tests tend to be automated. Why why do you think it might be a good idea to automate the unit test? You had the answer previously already, but yes. I know. Yeah, for purposes of regression testing. Now. Regression testing is testing things that we have tested before again when we have changed some part of the software to ensure that we haven't broken anything that previously worked. And doing regression testing manually for a whole system would mean means running each and every test manually over and over again every time we make a new build. For example, is very very resource expensive, so we can't do that. So, uh, in cases where it's easy to do uh, automated testing, which is fairly typically easy to do at the unit level, uh, then it's often worthwhile. So they become an asset and it help, they help us check for uh, regression problems. Regression problems often come when we fix bugs or add new features to a software. We get, for example, unintended side effects of code that we add or change. So that is why regression testing is very critical. So. Unit tests, are, there are several unit test frameworks available today that people use at uh, JUnit, for example, or Java for uh, testing, uh, making automated unit tests. And the things we typically test are the interface of the module, the, or uh, the local data structures that they work correctly. We test for boundary conditions in the requirements. So a boundary condi- condition this is a technique that we'll discuss later, you will read about it in your book boundary so boundary, uh, uh, equivalence classes and boundary value testing. It means, for example, if the computer asks you to enter a number between 0 and 10, then you would check for 0 minus 1, which should not be allowed. You would check for something between 0 and 10, let's say 5, and then you would check uh, 10 and 11. So you would check the boundaries and something in between. And something in between would be a, an equivalence class. But the idea is that uh, you know in the code if you have boundaries given in the requirements. Uh, the coder probably has written some code that tests for those boundaries. So you test the, execute the code that tests for those boundaries by e- entering values that are at the boundary just below, just uh, above the boundaries. That is called boundary condition testing. And of course, if we have... This very simple example, enter a number between 0 and 10, we could do a test case, testing uh, minus 1, whatever, all possible numbers that we could enter, alpha, uh, numeric characters and so on. But that would be too expensive. We can never test everything. Uh, we'll see that in a very concrete way later. Uh, which means that we need to select those test cases that are most likely to reveal problems in our software. And the boundaries, uh, for any requirement or input field or output field tend to be those that uh, have a high le- higher rate of errors than many other. We test for independent paths or execution paths uh, and error handling paths. Uh, we should test also for uh, exceptions in our code. So these are the things that we look for when we develop unit tests. Test the interface, test the local data structures. Uh, Overflow, underflow conditions, normal conditions, boundary conditions, independent paths, and error handling paths are exceptions. So, developing a good set of tests for even at the unit level can be uh, quite demanding. You need to think carefully about getting a good picture of whether uh, your uh, module
0: really performs the way it's supposed to uh, by exercising your test cases. Okay, let's keep Okay, we have two concepts here that uh,
1: can be important. We have the concepts of driver and the concepts of stub. Now a driver would be a main routine that calls uh, your module. So it can be more or less empty, but it calls your module, so you can test it. It's one way of coding. And then, below the module is the module, if you have a hierarchical architecture, you must have things that you haven't implemented yet, but that needs to be there for the module to be able to run. Uh, and then you would implement stubs, which is dummy code that you can call, but it doesn't do perform the correct features, So perform the correct functions, yet it just gives you a, a decent reasonable return value that you can use uh, in your module. So a driver is something that calls your module and probably something that you call that doesn't have the functionality implemented yet. I guess most of you should be familiar with these terms, so let's not spend uh, more time on that. Then when we work our the way up in the testing hierarchy from the unit level testing, which is the lowest level, we work towards getting uh, testing the whole system, uh, then we need to integrate the system somehow. Uh, there are many ways we can integrate the system. Uh, the waterfall model in its uh, most uh, poor implementation leads to Big Bang, Big Bang integration. Big Bang integration means that we have different teams developing different modules, and when they have tested their modules at the end of the whole project, we'll see if it all works together. Uh, typically, we end up with lots of problems. So, in most real-world cases, we do incremental. Uh, uh, construction, int- incremental uh, integration, and then we can use sandwich integration, top-down integration, and bottom-up integration. And these are very simple to understand, so we are not going to spend uh, a lot of time with them. But here, in top-down integration, we first start with the top module, we test up with stubs, and then we replace the stubs with real code uh, one at a time, a you know, first. Uh, way, so we can understand uh, which module might produce problems in our system. So we'll start with the top module, which is
0: implemented, and then we add below it different modules. And then in bottom-up, we do it the other way. We start with the drivers that test the low-level modules,
1: and then we replace the drivers. So we start with testing the lowest level. of of components that we have. They might be the data structures, whatever, and work our way up to testing the whole system. Uh, In most real world cases, we actually often do sandwich integration or we do uh, integration that is continuous. Continuous integration means that we build uh, the architectural skeleton consisting of both drivers and stubs for the whole system. Uh, And then we can do dummy calls through the whole architecture in all the levels, all the modules in our system. And then we add functionality to this system. That is when we grow the system. Uh, This is what we use mostly in agile development and in incremental development. We don't develop the modules uh, as such completely uh, outside the whole architecture, but we start by developing a skeleton architecture to which we add functionality and then essentially o- always have an integrated system that we test. So these models are, or, or bottom-up, sandwich, top-down integration, are typical and mo- most important when we have separate teams working on different modules that can't integrate uh, all the time during the whole project. For example, when we have subcontractors, we might have globally distributed projects with different vendors providing different components then these strategies become very important. If we have smaller projects in which we can do daily builds, uh, we have just a single team, then we typically can start working with an architectural skeleton to which we add functionality and are able to do continuous, more or less, integration testing as well.
0: Often the... Daily integration
1: testing, if you wish, that we use in, in many programs, many, many uh, incremental models, is is referred to as smoke testing. Uh, it doesn't mean that we go out smoking uh, some uh, drug. It means that uh, we just perform a brief testing of the whole system, running typically automated regression tests to see whether smoke comes out, comes out of the computer. As you all know, all computers have a small amount of magical smoke, and when that magical smoke comes out out of the computer, they stop working. Same goes for software systems. So here's the idea that we should run a set of automated regression tests uh, and uh, see uh, whether the system seems to work. So it's not a comprehensive testing, it's not testing everything, it's checking that we didn't break any big things uh, when we integrated the system. So, in particular, for big systems, uh, doing thorough testing can take days, or weeks, or months. So, we wouldn't be able to do that for each and every build we do. However, smoke testing typically should be, we should be able to do that uh, at the most during, say, a night, if we use daily build. So, we integrate our newly developed components, or typically new versions if we work with an architectural skeleton into the build. And then we run automatically a series of, of uh, tests that are designed to find obvious or big errors that are showstoppers. Showstopper error is an error that makes the system unusable. And this is, so this is the whole idea of smoke testing. There are other, lots of classifications of testing, but are special kinds of testing uh, that we Might want to do in addition to the the steps we saw here previously. Uh, Could someone explain me the difference between alpha and beta testing? What is alpha and beta testing?
0: Yeah.
1: Alpha testing and beta testing both use users as testers. That is the first important thing. Alpha testing can use users outside the organization as well, so you're not absolutely correct. Uh, They can be, some organizations do alpha testing only inside. The main major difference is that alpha testing is to a very typical, a very small select set of users. They often can be only inside the organization, for example, your product managers or or whatever, your sales people. But you can also have selected customers in your alpha testing cycle. Uh, in alpha testing, you have a select small number of customers that are typically, or, or, or testers that are typically well-versed in the system. They know the system well, uh, and they, they, might be, they are typically just a few. In beta testing, you essentially try to reach a large number of testers. Why would that be important, reaching a large number of beta testers? Users having a large number of users test your system. Why why, why? why? Why do you need that? Why don't you just ship the whole thing after beta uh, alpha testing? Yeah. A million monkeys and a typewriter. Okay. So if we get a million users, somebody will find most bugs. Okay. Yeah. Uh, that is one point. There's there another point. Yeah, that, that is true of course. The more we execute the software. Uh, the more likely we are to uncover most bugs, so that is one of the main things. There, there are
0: other, those, uh, other, though, reasons for having data programs that people can attend. Yeah. Yeah, you can, you can use it as a marketing
1: tool.
2: Yeah. average
1: you can get better usability feedback from a lot of people outside the organization than even your select users because they might not be representative. Very good point. Yes? A different uh, this was the technical thing I was getting at. It might be impossible for you, in particular if you are t- developing PC software that uh, expects various things of the environment you can have. Uh, you cannot possibly have all configurations that you might find in your customer base. For different versions of whatever software drivers what else strange things they might have so it's one way of getting uh, uh, your software tested in a vast amount of different environments uh, there are of course uh, most vendors Microsoft and so on you have uh, there are lots of companies that provide you test beds in which they can test on all versions of windows with different configurations and so on but the cheapest way to do this, to get your software tested in a, uh, a large uh, amount of different environments, is to have a beta program that is free, that you can get people to, to use. It would be extremely uh, expensive for you to do it yourself. So it's a way of getting testing for free, also, to have a beta program. Instead of doing it yourself inside your organization, which would be extremely expensive to have that much testing going on, you c- by having beta programs, you can get things for free that you wouldn't otherwise be able to do. So that's a very important point. And data testing always, you're, that is when you inform for massive okay. Then we can do other kinds of security recovery, stress testing, uh, testing estu- extremely high resource usage, uh, reliability testing. I once participated in, in, in stress. Uh, stress testing, which was done in the uh, system was uh, extremely highly configured, and then, then we simulated when everything was uh, stressed stress to 100%, then we cut the power to the computer, and then we saw what was left. So, those would be things you can test for. Uh, these are specific test scenarios that you can do, that you wouldn't do in your, all your data builds. But. Okay. Now let's go to the real world on testing. Uh, you always need to prioritize your tests. Now we are going, let's start with the, uh, the simple diagram here, which is uh, here. Of course, we want, might think it's a good idea to test everything. Here is, here is a single, simple flow chart of a piece of software. And obviously, we would like to test all different paths, all possibilities here, in this piece of software, which is a very small program. You can see just a few conditions and a loop. Uh, So there are 10 to the 14 possible paths. So if you can execute one test per millisecond, it will only take 3,170 years to test that small piece of software thoroughly.
0: So we could be sure that it works.
1: This is the problem we have in software testing. Most programs
0: that you do anything useful are way more complex than the one we have here. So the whole idea of testing everything should be just to be thrown off
1: because that is impossible. And then, when we understand that, then the question becomes: What should we test? Since we know we can never test everything. Then we end up with various strategies that we will talk about in the second part of the course more. Uh, If we do what is called white box testing, then we would think, okay, we cannot check for every possible combination of everything here, but what about at least checking that we can go through each possible execution path here? We go the one to the most, to the left most, and then the next one, and so on, and then we can say that we do a certain coverage based on that. That is why you might have run into concepts like test coverage. Uh, and then you they typically thought about how big a percentage of certain ways of calculating the possible <coughs> execution paths that you have been able to test for. And that, that is also why we end up with uh, looking at things like uh, uh, things like boundary value analysis and other techniques. So the whole field of software testing Uh, It's mostly about how to define and decide what to test. Since we can never test everything, we need to find strategies that helps us find the things that are most likely to uncover bugs. But this is also the problem that leads to the fact that there is no way in real life that we can show that a piece of software doesn't have any bugs by testing. Because we can never test everything. So the only thing we can do by running tests is to show that the tests we have do find or or uh, don't find any bugs. That is what we know. So if all our test passes, then we know that tests that we have uh, doesn't find the tests that we have doesn't find any bugs. Thank you very much. In the particular environment that we have, under the particular circumstances that we happen to have, so if we move it to another
0: computer with Other versions, for example, of the operating system, we have no idea. So we get a very, very limited view to software quality by running tests.
1: So that is why we need to define good tests and prioritize tests. So then there are many, many ideas in our field. We're going to talk about some now and more later in the course for how do we prioritize and define the tests that are most likely to help us find problems in our program. So, here you can see that we need to prioritize tests, and there are lots of possible criteria for thinking. Tests where a failure would be most severe. So, we might have certain modules, certain algorithms, certain data structures that are critical. We would focus our testing efforts on them, (coughs) because if we had problems there, they might kill a patient. They might generate a disaster. If we have a user interface niche, uh, that might not be that critical. So we would focus on where the consequences of of having a bug would be the most severe. Or where the failures would be most visible. Where failures are most likely. Failures are most likely in long-time software systems, in the modules that we end up developing the most or the modules with the most bugs previously, because fixing a bug typically can add more bugs. So, the modules that are most changing the most would be the ones where failures typically are most likely. We can ask the customers to prioritize what are the most important things, then we would test them the most, as we discussed when we talked about prioritizing features for incremental development. We can ask what is critical to the customer's business. For example, seeing we develop software for a bank. Then one typically fairly critical thing is that we don't lose money in our transactions. So whatever happens, uh, somebody bombs us or, or we have a power failure or whatever, when we remove money from one account, uh, if the system goes down, we shouldn't end up in a situation with money taken away from one account and not being put somewhere else. That would be something we would have to design and check and test for whereas whether whether, uh, something happens with the user interface, that's not not as important. So we would find what are the absolutely critical things that cannot ever contain problems. Those are the ones we would check for. What are the areas that are changed most often, as I mentioned? Areas with the most problems in the past, and typically the most complex or technically critical uh, areas would be things that we would focus our testing efforts upon. When we test, we typically find bugs. We find many bugs, or we find few bugs. Now, it might be, a typical mistake might be that, okay, we run, we run all the tests, we
0: didn't find any problems, our software is of high quality. It's not as simple as that. If we don't find many bugs,
1: equally possible it might be due to the fact that we have a poor set of tests. So our software might be extremely poor, but as we have poor tests, too, it looks good because we don't find many bugs using our tests or by our testers, because our testers are doing a poor job. So the fact that we don't find many bugs doesn't equal our software. is of high quality. It doesn't contain bugs. It's a matter of understanding that we have a good software testing, way of testing the software, and good software. So, when we find a few faults, we might think that we have high test quality and high software quality, but we might have low test quality and low software quality instead. That is when we would typically uh, recognize this by the number of
0: calls angry customers make to our help desk. So, back to one of the main points again.
1: Due to the fact that we can't test everything, Testing can only show that there are bugs in the programs, not that there aren't bugs. If we can't test everything, we typically cannot find all bugs in a decent software system. Testing as an activity doesn't create high quality software. To make software that contains few bugs is something we must build. We must build the quality and we cannot test to get quality.
0: We will typically not be able to fix all bugs we find. We will typically prioritize which bugs
1: we will fix based upon, for example, the severity, criticality, the effects they have on the customer, the customer's business. Small bugs that we know of that can be circumvented or that only a few people will ever notice. typically tend to be left in the software when we ship it. And... uh, a mindset issue is that we should focus on criticizing the product, not the uh, developers, when we find bugs in the software. Okay. Now, two important concepts for you to remember and to keep separate is regression testing and retesting. Retesting is what we do when we first of all we run a test, it fails, thus we have found the bug. Found when we have removed the bug, we have fixed the bug, then we, knew, then we run a new version of the software with the t- fault fixed, and then we rerun the same test that found the bug previously. And if it, it should pass, then we have fixed the fault. So retesting is running the, the test that has f- found the bug previously, again when we have fixed the bug, and it shouldn't find the bug anymore. So we have retested the software, and we didn't find that bug. But then we have the question, if we now pass this test, is the software now in better shape or worse shape than before we fixed the bug? The answer is, we don't know. What we do know is that many bug fixing activities introduce new bugs into the software. And that is why we need regression testing, which we mentioned previously. That is running all other tests as well to check that the fix the change we made in the software system hasn't broken anything else.
0: So, we should do regression tests uh, after we have changed some fixed bugs and so on. Good. Any questions about retesting or regression testing? Okay.
1: Here more, even stricter definition of execution-based testing. We are getting at the limitations here, again. So, here's a formal definition of execution-based testing. So, execution-based testing is the process of inferring certain behavioral properties of a software product. That is, we try to understand something about its behavior based upon the results of executing that software, in a known environment, with known and selected inputs. So this gets at the limitations. So what do we really know when a test has passed? We know that in my computer, using the operating system, libraries, blah, 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 whatever, exactly I have in my computer, using exactly those inputs and existing data that I had, it passed. I, don't, I have no idea if it will pass on DLS computer. Testing doesn't tell me that. It tells that it, in the exact situation in which I run the test, it passed. So, we must be very careful when inferring uh, that uh, the behavioral properties, that is, the software works or
0: doesn't work, based upon running a set of tests in a single environment. Now...
1: We talked about test cases and strategies that we need to prioritize them and find things that test that are likely to reveal errors. I will now, for, for the first uh, part you will read about, it's important that you understand the difference between the white box methods and the black box methods. They are methods that can be used to design the test cases, that is to say what should you test for when you test a piece of software. And we're going to do that. this we're very briefly now. You can read more in the book, and then we'll talk more in the second part of the course. But the main idea between the white box and black box, somebody, some people like to talk about a transparent box and a black box. So think of all the code you have written. And you can put it in a transparent box or in a black box. And that is the exact difference between the strategies. White box testing is based upon are uh, being able to test based upon the actual code you have written. And you develop technique that works based upon the actual code. Whereas black-box testing is test, cases and test techniques that are based upon not seeing the actual code, but for example only the requirements, typically. In white-box testing, those are the things that we would use when we, let's say here is an abstraction on a piece of code. In white box testing, we would look at things. How can we cover as much of the execution path through the code as possible? So, in white box testing, we typically end up with various methods that aim at coverage. So, there are statement coverage that is executing each uh, statement that you have in the code or path coverage, and there are various uh, versions of path coverage that we aim for. And then uh, we get coverage gives us a numbers so we can say we have a 90 whatever percent coverage uh, in our testing. It means that we have at least executed uh, a certain number of the possible paths or statements in the code or paths through the code. So white box
0: techniques develop tests based upon the idea of executing as many paths or many statements as possible in the code. Black box, test. black box testing, on the other hand, doesn't
1: look at the code at all. In black box testing, uh, we only look at the requirements. So the example I gave you with the enter number between 0 and 10, that's an example of a black box testing technique. Uh, then you would do, uh, there you use techniques like boundary value analysis. That is when you look at the boundaries of the allowed values uh, that uh, you should enter in any field. And then you do equivalence class testing when you say that, for example, if you have the same example, you have a number, enter a number between 0 and 10, you would say that all numbers 1 to 9 are equivalent. It doesn't matter. It's likely that the software doesn't do anything special between the numbers between 1 and 9 because they are within the boundaries. So let's say that they are one equivalence class and just have one of them, 5, 6, whatever. Let's not test all of them. And then we'll test along the boundaries to make sure that the boundary conditions are tested for. So this would be an example of black box technique. Black box technique. It gets much more complicated when we test, for example, at the system level in in the real world, when we have a real dialogue box, for example, and we would like to test all possible combinations of the various fields. Then we end up with something, uh, using techniques for combinatorial test design, that we'll talk about during the second part of the course. But the basic distinction is important to understand that white-box testing techniques are based upon seeing the code. They are typically (coughs) aimed for coverage, for running as many paths through the code as possible. Whereas black-box testing is based upon testing via typically the user interface based upon the requirements. And they are finding techniques because you cannot test for all possible inputs in any Uh, in any any case.
0: So, that's what I had for you today. Do you have any questions or thoughts? Okay, see you all next week. Uh, And enjoy your lunch.